Important Things listeners. It is I, Vanessa, flying solo for this recording um, and bucking against the new trend of intro-less episodes um, because I felt that this episode warranted a bit of a um, explanation for where we are in this world. Um, So you may have noticed that we took a little break in January. Wasn't necessarily intentional or planned, um, but uh, with all the time and energy we spent delving into the conflict in Israel and all of the uh, you know, emotional and intellectual toil that that has, uh, caused as well as some life things going on, uh, with Adam and I looking for a house, which if you've ever looked for a house, you know, it's a freaking horrible thing to do to oneself. Um, and you know, just general holidays and travel and all the things we took a bit of a break, but now we're back. We're back. And we are putting together a little lineup of things, um, starting with this episode with Charles Love and Wilfred Riley, uh, co-hosts of the Cut the Bull podcast. Um, In keeping with the idea, I'm not going to go into a long-winded introduction of them. We'll get into it in the podcast, so just stay tuned. Um, And we also have some other episodes coming down the pipeline um, around topics various and sundry, uh, not just dealing with the conflict. I think we, I don't think that topic's over, unfortunately, because shit is still happening and happening in shittier and shittier ways. So I would imagine we'll come back to it, but we also figured it was time to to think about and talk about other things um, and other things we shall talk about. So this episode, um, you'll hear a bit more of me because Charles and Wilfred and I talk about uh, a subject that's close to my heart. Um, so hopefully you enjoy that. We get into uh, the topics of race and history and education. So buckle in. And coming up soon, I think we'll have um, some content on Iraq, that old chestnut. Remember that war? Um, And we have some content coming up on tech, content that we planned to (laughs) release last year and then got uh, diverted from. So we'll publish that. And we might even have a nice little um, for subscribers only episode on um, uh, American fiction, a movie coming out that you may have heard of and seen. So if you want to get our sense, our perspectives on that film, you should become a paid subscriber. And speaking of which, you should follow us uh, on the Substack. That's uncertain.substack.com. You should give us the five stars on Apple because that really helps. You should share us with your friends and enemies. And with that... Enjoy this episode with Charles Love and Wilfred Riley. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Adam. Welcome to Uncertain Things on uncertain.substance.com and all the things. And it's been so we, long. And today we we may have two guests. We may have one. We'll see how the night goes. But we certainly right now have in the virtual studio Charles Love, author of Race Crazy. He's Representing the book in it, it, virtually, you can't see it because <laughs> yeah. we don't have video products. If, if you're but, listening, here's my hand. But imagine, imagine, imaginary product placement for his wonderful book. Is there any any introductions that that I'm delinquent on? No, 
don't know. That's good enough. We can get into all the things I do. The less I talk yammer on about me, the more we can talk about stuff. I'm sure things will come up. So I, there is a more fundamental introduction that I, I wanted to to provide, but I think just we just started the recording because we were already like halfway through our conversation, and as this fits this podcast, I, I don't see why we should just not just not bring in the listener in this halfway talk. <laughs> Into the green room conversation. Carry on. So yesterday there was an article of the Eric Adams declared social media as an environmental toxin. And I'm like, what are we even doing here? What are we even doing here? We have an actual immigration problem. We have co- collapsing infrastructure. And <laughs> it goes out to declare social media as an environmental toxin. Like, imagine like, the way I see it. This is a politician going on his platform to basically say, a bugga, bugga, bugga. That's, that's like those words. This doesn't mean anything. This is nothing. <laughs> right. Right. So I had a problem with that because, you know, I guess I, people tell me I beat up on the left more than the right. I do because they're insane. But th- th- these are some of the problems we have left, right, and center is that people want to legislate everything they believe. I got plenty of beliefs. I don't uh, spew on my podcast, news, or anything else because they don't matter, right? So the, the, the fact that he wants to legislate that when that's something that you can give people information about, you can say the good and bad things about it, you can steer kids away from it. You don't just call it a toxin. And then Adam mentioned the border. There's the flip side. We have laws already on the books. All you gotta do is enforce them, but we don't have time to enforce the laws we have because we're too busy trying to legislate every single thing that people do. And we have Wilfred who's joined us. Hello, great to see you. (laughs) Great to see you guys. Yeah, sorry to be late. A weakness of mine in general, but I got stuck. <laughs> I am not immune to tardiness. Wilfred Riley, just join us, author of Taboo and the Hate Crime Hoax. And now we have the full company of yes. Cut the Bull to get the conversation started and have you introduce where you're coming at as public thinkers. Wilfred, your blurb for Charles's book, where you write that in this work, Charles takes its place among a new wave of black thinkers questioning the tactics, logic, and conclusions of today's woke movement. I kind of want to unpack what that, what that new wave means to you. And where, how do you see, how did you find yourself in it? What did, what do you see your place in it? Take it away. I mean, I, I think that blurb was a sincere one. We're also friends, but I mean, essentially, I think that there's, there's a great deal of reluctance in sort of the well-intentioned white and black upper middle class in the USA to acknowledge that the civil rights movement was a success, I guess would be one way to put that, or that progress has been made would be a broader way to put that. I mean, the reality that I use when I speak to black men's groups or business organizations is that the USA desegregated in 1954. And it took a while after that, but we're also talking about only the retrograde Deep South, even at that point, had Jim Crow systems in place. Civil Rights Act, 1964, pro-minority affirmative action, 1967. I mean, so, you know, when I was applying to law school 35 years later, I mean, if anything, I had a 10, 15% advantage across the board at every every school I was I was applying toward. And, you know, my parents, well, my mom, my father was in the picture, but I mean, like my parents went to college. This is 1919 or whatever, the last great race riots, 33. This is a long time ago. So I think that the idea that there's still a civil rights movement, that like American black questions are almost always looked at through the civil rights lens, BLM, Uh, Al Sharpton's National Action Network is still around, collects more than $100 million a year. The SPLC is still around, a well-invested endowment of $480 million. 
So the idea that this is still what's going on is deeply bizarre. And there are a whole bunch of structural, moral, so on reasons that people don't really discuss how crazy this is. So, I mean, in the intro to that book and in one of my books, I just make this obvious point that there's not a race war going on in America. I think I'm going to start making this point more against the right uh, these days as well. You see major campaigns, like the Turning Point USA just launched a campaign against Martin Luther King on Martin Luther King Day. So you see this obnoxious kind of racialism just all across the picture. But um, certainly when I, when I was critiquing the left at this point, the question is, why are you guys still doing this? I mean, there's obviously still sexism out there, so on. But like the, the major things that you were campaigning against ended 50 years ago. What's the strategy now? What are you going to do about crime? So on down the line. Okay, I'll piggyback. I mean, I, I agree with everything Will said, but I, I piggyback on one thing that I try to focus on, and he put it in the in the blurb. He said, "Question." Will's big thing is always you just have to be able to tell the truth. That if things are true, you should be able to say it. So that's the first way. So Will gets to come first, tell the truth. But then after that, a lot of people have uh, opinions. So it doesn't matter whether you're left, right, right or wrong. Everybody has an opinion and they say, this is what I think the problem is, right? But very few people do the things that I try to focus on most. most and that is question whether the actions, whether you're right about what the problem is or giving you that argument that is, that is a problem, question whether the actions you're taking are actually affecting it in a positive way. Is it fixing it or bringing you closer to a fix? If that's not the case, even if you're right about the problem, even if you have good intentions, shouldn't matter. And then focusing on solutions. A lot of people just want to scream into the wind and say, I don't like this, right? There's too many of this. There's too much of that. I don't like this. And they complain. And you say, well, what do you want to do about it? They just complain. So I thought it's important to question. And you have to be able to question everything and everyone. It doesn't make you racist, anti-Black. It doesn't make you a white supremacist. It doesn't mean you hate America. It just means that, hey, I'm wondering if that works. So I think that for me, that was the thing. In the book, I wanted to say both, I did put some of my opinion in it, but most of it was, this is what they say. I don't necessarily believe it, but it may be true. But what if they're wrong? And where they're right, their solutions are wrong. A couple of people attacked me because I did book TV on the book. And I said that, you know, the large majority of the 1619 Project is accurate. So people would say, look at this clown. So you gotta, you're, you're attacking them, but then you're saying they're right. Well, I say, you can be right, but wrong about what you infer from what you're saying. And you can be right and lie by omission. It's as if you say you write the definitive story of the state of Alaska from pre-state all the way to now, every prominent person, every, every city, everything about Alaska is in this book. It's a 900-page tome, except you label it the definitive history of the, American, of, of the United States. So everything in the book is factual, but I'm still going to attack, you know, how you, how you left out the original capital and the new capital. You left out of Florida. You left out Texas. You left out so much stuff out, but you didn't lie. So that's how that can be the case. And that's what I took from the 1619 Project. And a lot of things that they do, they just cherry pick things and they don't pull the camera back to look at it. Just very briefly, one of the major omissions with things like 1619 is just the utter lack of context. I mean, we've all done journalistic work. I think most of us trained as social scientists. It's just... If you, like the Alaska example is actually pretty good because I mean, throughout history, almost everyone engaged in slavery. Most of it was Chattel slavery. I mean, this is ancient Rome, the Arab trade, the great black empires you know, from Ethiopia to Shanti to Mali sold slaves. The Aztecs often ate their slaves, blah, blah, blah. 
So if you write a 300-page book, and the 1619 Project book comes pretty close to this, where you break down every single horror of slavery, but you never mentioned, by the way, everyone did this. And by the way, there were all these other things going on. All the Irishmen were bond servants. None of the women could vote, and they had no rights of any kind. I mean, just like so on down the line. If you focus specifically on this thing and present it as though the USA is at eternal fault for this original sin, I believe is their term, this founding evil that it's implied no one else engaged in, yeah, I would describe that as pretty dishonest. I mean, if you actually just in context then in an academic article discuss the USA and then discussed all the other slaveholding powers at the same time, you don't you don't lack guilt about that. I'm, an, you know, I'm not happy the country used to have slaves, but you come toward a more general sense like, oh, history was very bad. We used to conquer each other as versus whites, for example, have some kind of unique debt here or Americans do. Okay. I have a lot. I have a lot to respond to all of you. I'm, t- I'm taking notes because there's like three, four threads that I want to come back to. And hopefully I don't forget. So a little bit of context, why this is going to be an interesting and maybe fraught conversation for me. So outside of uncertain things, I have another podcast I do called Urban Roots. We are focused on uh, storytelling from marginalized groups. So far, we've predominantly focused on African-American history, and we both highlight history that we feel like people don't know about very much. Um, And we also highlight people who are on the ground doing work to do preservation and economic development in the communities today uh, to kind of bring wealth back to their communities because we have like an urbanism focus. So a lot of these stories are about how wealth has been taken out of these communities and like the reasons why. So that's my positioning. So my first, so it's it's hard for me to have a com- these conversations because to Charles, to your to one of your points, questioning is not very encouraged in my world. Okay, we'll be <laughs> I believe in what, very polite. <laughs> I I'll, I believe in what I'm doing, and I I I I do see the pl- the importance of. Uh, elevating these histories, go, talking to the people in the communities, understanding what has happened so that we can figure out more like equitable systems, especially around economic development. I, I worked at CNN for six years and questioning was not encouraged in my world either. <laughs> Fair it might enough. be pretty much the same world. That's the problem. See, I'm in a lefty world. I'm in a place uh, where I'm, I am, I'm both creating content, but also fundraising for this content. And so it, there is, there's definitely a, a, a sense that I have to be careful about what I say and and what I ask and what I pressure test. Um, I think in part because of being in this world, but also because I'm a white person doing this work. So there's like, that's partly why there's like, this is a, this is going to be an interesting one to navigate. And I don't, I'm not saying that this is right, but this is the reality of what the world is like. The, right the world known as America. The world known as not just America anymore, I don't think, unfortunately. It's worth pointing out just very briefly, not to bust in on you, but like how kind of tribe specific that is. Mm-hmm. Like as kind of a center right business type, I don't encounter that at all. Like my mm-hmm. black, right. quote unquote, redneck and former trading floor, sales floor and so on buddies will rip on each other about, and this is, this is crosses gender lines, ethnic group lines, age lines, about every conceivable topic. And the idea is that that's how you develop knowledge. So this is right. something Charles and I actually encountered with Cut the Bull. Like, we're, I mean, we both have a political perspective, but we're not wild bigots. And we tried to invite on a bunch of our lefty friends as well as our rightist friends 
So every episode wasn't just a bunch of people like broing out talking about like sure. the border. And none of them would come on. And they all had these eloquent apologies. Uh, Tam, mm. Tamara Reed did come on. So shout to her. But it was literally like two people out of maybe a third of the population that we talked to. So I, right. I think that's worth considering. Like, you know, if the ideas that are so prevalent in what I think I described as urban up middle class life are at all defensible, why are right. they so completely safeguarded? Like if uh, men can become women at will, why won't people discuss that? Maybe a lot of this stuff is just nonsense. It seems worth considering. It's it's interesting because I obviously come from a very different perspective than Vanessa. My approach to all my activities has been driven by curiosity and by by a, uh, a sincere interest balance with distrust in, in human beings. And this is probably one of my biggest motivating factors in, in delving into these topics and starting on certain things is whenever you feel like there is a subject that has a, has a coating of taboo around it, not to, not to plug your book, it becomes more, more important to understand, not necessarily deal with the topic itself, because some taboos are well-deserved, but at least to understand why that taboo is there and, 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 and question to what extent it's, it's actually useful or, or creating, I don't know, some, uh, maybe cultish behaviors, maybe some uh, power grabs. What what is it hiding? I worked in traditional media environments. That pri- that set of priorities, that this this approach to what my job as a journalist uh, should be, was discouraged. Was sometimes literally discouraged, and and sometimes more covertly with with a with a smile and a nod, but but a killing of a story or a. Or, or a signaling that, you know, this is not going to get you anywhere. Whereas when it came to my experience in more center-right media, the approach was bring it on, you know, where there, there was still some degree of drawing lines about who should you not have a conversation with, but not based on their beliefs, but based on whether this person seems to be even a, a, an honest player in trying to convey those beliefs, right? Because you can have people who are... I don't know, performance artists who don't necessarily even represent the perspective that they that they arrogate for themselves. And there's a good argument or it's still a debate whether or not you should platform them. But there's a good argument that a conversation with a person like that is not actually worth your audience's time. But to the extent that somebody is is by the thoughtful representation of a perspective you disagree with, the approach on right wing media that I had that I had a chance to work with has always been. Let them speak. Let's have the conversation. And it's just fascinating how it came to be that the the side that is historically associated with free speech and discourse, maybe 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 wrongly, but still has completely abnegated any or even disassociated themselves from the from that what I would have considered virtue to the point that in many circles. Talking about free speech is almost like dog whistling. It's like code for let's bring in the racism. (laughs) One thing I want to say is, remember I talked about questioning? We all as humans, none of us have all the answers. So when you stay in just your silo, what happens if you're wrong? So you're doing it. So I don't mean wrong by the reasons what you're trying to fix, but you're wrong um, in the avenues that you're taking to fix them. But you don't hear any other ideas because you cut those people off. So what I find is a lot of people think that every they're considering every possibility, but they're not. They're considering every possibility of the two that their group are willing to talk about. 
and ignoring mm-hmm. the other eight to 12 possible ideas that could help solve the problem. So you're limiting yourself right. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can definitely, I could see that. And I'd be curious to, to know to what extent I have my own blind spots as I'm going forward with this work and who I'm not talking to. Um, but on the other hand, when you talk to real people, you often find that real people are open to real solutions and conversations that cross party lines. It's much more when you stay on the level of like the funders and the media conversation that it's much, they're the ones that are much more likely to to w- want things to fit into a certain narrative box. Um, but to, to kind of comment on some of the things that you brought up, Wilfred, like I think you said like, there, I do think that one thing that you're isolating is that there's a, a lack of acknowledgement of progress. I would say that that's across the board, not just in terms of racism, but in kind of all of the isms. The, the, in left circles, there's we, there's a lack of desire to acknowledge progress of any kind. There's a, a overemphasis and focus on the problems and what's going wrong. I think we're there's kind of like it's almost like we're kind of sick. Like we can't we can't get break out of this like cycle of negativity. Um, but I don't think that that precludes us f- from deep delving into the histories and the stories and, and fig- figuring out what's still going wrong in this country. I think it's just much more about how do we frame this in ways that are positive and solution oriented mm-hmm. instead of only dwelling in the negative, in the injustices, in the issues that have happened. I think there is, but I do think that there's a line that can be walked I, if if you do it smartly. I mean, I'm sure you're going to argue that most people don't, but. That's, that's exactly the point. That's true, <laughs> but they don't. So my issue yeah. is, is pre, I like to make this as simple as possible. You get more of what you promote. And if you prioritize something, that's what you focus on. That's just regardless of what it is. So obviously, if you spend your balance of your time is I want to solve this problem income inequality, racism, climate change, whatever the case. It is a problem. I do want to solve it. But I spend 90% of my time complaining about how bad it is, not just now, but how bad it has been forever. So the other problem I had with the 1619 Project was, so, so you say it's true, Charles, but I don't agree with the inferences they make. But they also say, they'll paint a picture, as Will said, deep, pages and pages, beautifully written about, look at what this man went through. He did everything right. He made a lot of money. They killed him because he was he was an uppity Negro. Or they did that, they did they all that. And that is exactly what's happened to everybody today. Blacks are going through that same thing. So if you frame everything around just the bad, you're not even spending enough energy or time uh, on the solution. So how could you possibly fix it? Because that's not where you're spending your time. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's legitimate to draw through lines, though. That I think that's like, like I guess you all were pushing on this idea of like original sin. I, I mean, I, I do think that something that is fundamentally unique to the U.S. is not the fact that we had slavery. It's just that our particular format of it, I do think is a defining character of our country. Right. It's one well, that we have, we'd spent time kind of avoiding and ignoring for a long time. And I do think it's generally good that we're at a place now where we can acknowledge it and see, see the things that are ramifications of the past decisions from slavery to segregation to whatever that still infiltrate today. I think, I don't think that that is in and of itself a, uh, a, uh, a, a negative way to understand our history, as long as you're understanding it as it's not like we're doomed and that things are so bad and that it ha- we haven't made progress. Like there has been tremendous progress within within these like oppressive systems in the past. 
yeah, out mean, of the front my, of the wheel. I guess my comment on that, I actually don't, and I'm a political scientist rather than specifically mm-hmm. a historian, but I don't see any reason at all that the U- USA would feel specifically guilty about slavery. I mean, there are a lot of arguments that our slave system was somehow different, but if you look at the death rates of people that were enslaved, for that matter, white bond servants, or how many slaves we had, or how long we had slaves, that's not really true. I mean, you could argue we did slightly better at writing arguments for racism, but the response to that is actually that, to some extent, that's because we're a better country. I mean, in most countries, like the great Arab and African nations, which have become today's Arabia, Nigeria, places that are still world powers today, um, there was never an assumption that all people were equal. So the the justification for slavery was very simple. You lost the war. Get your ass on that boat. I mean, there was just open brutality. There was no rationale. There was no mitigating kindness. Usually you'd get your penis cut off if you're an adult male warrior and you lost to the Arabs. So in the USA, we came up with a whole long rationale about how we weren't going to do any of that stuff, but also how the only reason we could enslave people at all was that they were members of inferior groups and so on down the line. This is awkward and unfortunate. We should certainly talk about it. But I mean, the idea that that's somehow worse than just saying every time we win a battle, all of you are going to get your right hand cut off and you're going to, you know, develop your rowing and crop growing skills for the next 50 years. I I don't think that's logically accurate. I'm not like passionately disagreeing with you. Slavery, of course, should be in the textbooks. But there there really is nothing. This when I've read Irish history, which is my paternal side, Native American Mm -hmm. history. I don't see much of anything that makes American blacks and whites stand out in terms of striking historical brutality. So I think that to some extent, what is different in the USA and a few Western European countries is the presence of an organized left that began to some extent with the goal of overthrowing the original structural systems. Now, I think, you know, the parasite adapts to the health level of the host. I don't think too many people want to do that today. But that that still is there. This idea that we are sick, we are wrong, was originally a revolutionary post-Marxist idea. And that pops up across most of the rest of the left, if you read the Scum Manifesto or the original Black Revolutionary stuff. And I think that that's part of the reason that progress can't just be accepted. In other countries like Nigeria or Japan, they just admit they have a bloody history and they say, well, we fixed 80% of that. We'll try to do better, but, you know, accept it or go back to your country. And I think that would be a perfectly healthy attitude for us. We, we don't do that because of one of the power blocks in our society. Final sentence here, because I have a tendency to ramble a little bit. But as a, as a final point, I think that it's also worth noting the amoral incentives here, which is one of the things I actually do research. If you admit, okay, 90% of black-white hatred, both directions, is gone. It just is. Support for interracial marriage is at 94%. We're the fourth least racist country in the world, I think. Shout to, what is it, Guyana, black, white, and Indian, uh, number one. But I mean, in Britain, but I mean, we're, we're right up there and there really is no need for a lot of the structural institutions that we have. I would keep skeleton crews in them to prevent a fallback to what we used to have. But admitting that even in the framework, even in the way I've posited it would mean saying that a lot of people are doing something useless and should be doing something else, that the great NGOs should retire their staffs. I was a former canvas manager for the human rights campaign, by the way. And, you know, I enjoyed lefty, but I'm still pro-gay rights. I like, I enjoyed lefty politics a bit, but you really saw what it was. Like, you're absolutely right. The ordinary guy on the street, left or right, African-American or white, can normally talk to you. The donor class doesn't want to do that. Like, we have three agenda points for this year, and we're going to push them through. And you foot soldier guys out there, if you want to keep earning your salary, are going are gonna to do that. That's what it is in media at the junior executive level, as you know, what it is in the NGO world. 
So if you just say, okay, we've pretty much fixed this problem. You know, 27% of marriages are interracial. Let's keep a skeleton crew. Let's go do something else. There's going to be massive institutional reaction to that. And I won't say much because Will gave you the meat. I just want to sprinkle something on top in that in your what you said prior to Will was also the through line and not to ignore it. And you mentioned that you know, it had been ignored. I'd like to know when. When when have we been ignoring our past and our yeah, history? Yeah, ignoring slavery and ignoring our past. I mean, I think it's it's it, for me it's evident in the way in people's gaps in in knowledge. I mean, there's like uh, there's people that we. I mean, not to say that it's that people aren't ignorant in America. <laughs> full stop. Which I think is generally true. <laughs> Our education system is <laughs> thankfully the left has cured us of historical ignorance. <laughs> um, no, in general, I will say that a your average American doesn't know very much about history. Full stop. So that's like any old figure of history, let alone figures of like uh, African American descent or whatever. And I guess to Will's point, we also have absolutely no knowledge of. Compar- comparative histories. So if we if we know nothing about our own history, we know even less about what's happening around the world and, and how to place us, ourselves in that context. Um, but when I, I mean, when I think about things like, I don't know, the Tulsa race massacre, which now everybody seems to know about. Um, but if you asked people five years ago, I don't know if anybody would have known about it, your average person on the street. And that was a pretty, a fairly pivotal uh, event in American history. It's like things, things like that. Uh, figure, and, and not even necessarily. We don't even necessarily have to go to the negative things either. Just like I did a podcast episode on Madame C.J. Walker. I don't know how many people know who she is. I mean, she's like a, a household name for a lot of people now. But was she ten years ago? I don't really know. So I, I think like there's, there is still a lot of ignorance. Um, around these stories. And I think it's it's nice that we're at a cultural moment now where we we value them and we want to bring them up and incorporate them into the broader narrative of what it means to be an American and who are our heroes and, you know, what are our mistakes? I like that. I think the only problems are, well, I won't say a problem. The first one is not a problem. I would just use different wording. Mm-hmm. Everything you said is true, but I wouldn't call that ignoring it, right? Because mm-hmm. you said yourself, they didn't teach history that well. So I, I'm sure I can run down a lot of, the most of the movies that are really successful, I'm not talking about lately when they got lazy, but in the from the late 70s to the early 90s when people were pumping out these his, uh, historical fiction or based on a true story, we found them interesting because we never knew the story. But those were also real, uh, real and they were white, sometimes white and, and sometimes not. So mm-hmm. it's just that you never can cover everything. There's always right. stories to be told. So people should keep telling those stories. Totally true. But I don't mm-hmm. think that's the same as ignoring one thing. Mm-hmm. And your second piece that I agree with, but uh, it, it brings me to the thing I told you, is that's the reason why I am not a fan of Black history. And people mm-hmm. hear that out of context and think, I don't want to teach Black history. I love it. I probably know most of the stories you tell on the pods because I studied it. I'm sure. from an all-Black town. My teachers taught it. But you don't look, you can't talk about being American and then separate that history as American history. So what you do is you teach American history and you do it in a robust way. And then you teach the things we were were talking about outside of what, so there should be a period of time that you teach, you know, earlier days, right? If you're talking about the founding of Western civilization, if you're talking about the history of China, you teach the world history from that time period. You teach American history on a broader standpoint because you're American, you should know it. Then you get into more modern times and you teach what happens around the world in the last 50 years. 
And when you're on your section on American history, which should be long, over more than one grade, you, you break it up in chunks and you teach it by time, not by race. You don't color it. You don't say, this is what this person done. You talk about what happened in that period during slavery uh, before the revolution. You talk about the revolution. You talk about the period post. And when you talk about that period, you talk about the prominent figures, the founding fathers, and you talk about what was happening beyond that. Right. For immigrants and, and, and the people who are enslaved and everything. You talk about it. You don't say it's black history because how can you mm -hmm. separate black history from American history? Right? I think one of the problems is that when the and, and I'm also coming at it as a historian, there are aspects that we should revisit in terms of how we, we build our curriculum and we should take more areas into account that have been maybe underrepresented. And sure, that's one conversation, but there's a whole mode in Bailey between saying parts of black history have not been fully incorporated into the American history curriculum and what the, the, the left then jumps into doing. And we need to completely reframe how we understand our own identity within the structure and understand that fundamentally America and, and capitalism and, and, and the European Enlightenment is a structurally oppressive system from its DNA. And that's not a story of you, fallible humans trying to figure out how to live into a, in a more equitable society, but rather a story of a malign force that took over land and, and, and brought in slaves in order to oppress it. And now nobody knows why, but for some reason, slavery has been abolished. It just happened. We, we find new ways in order to preserve that evil in more sinister and subtle ways. Maybe we actually do it because we like enslaving, we, we like slavery more when it's subtle than rather than it's in our face. That's, I think, an actual argument. But that's a very different thing than saying we need to readjust our curriculum and bring and bring more, shed more light on the role of, of Black Americans in American history. Yeah, if I can jump in just briefly here, one of the things that's really interesting about that, actually, that Adam just uh, pointed out, is the idea, and again, we talk, and by the way, there's just as much crazy shit on the right. Like the idea that the USA began as a white man's country and was intended to stay that way. Like all this nonsense Jefferson Davis said, misreadings of the Constitution. I'll actually, I'll kind of complete the horseshoe here. The title of Ibram Kendi's best-selling book, Stamped from the Beginning, comes from Jefferson Davis's inauguration speech. So a lot of people don't know that there's this, that there are these dueling sets of ideas in the USA about whether diverse equal societies can work out. And they right. existed for a while. And I, my position is the very mainstream Abe Lincoln, Martin Luther King position. Of course, diverse, equal societies can work out. And it's not a hypothetical question. We Look at India, look at Brazil, look at the EU as a whole, look at ancient Rome. We tend to little brother some of these countries, but I mean, they're BRICS-level nations. It's, it's not a hypothetical, implausible thing. But um, at any rate, like the idea of the, the radicals in the USA to some extent was that the entirety of our history should be reframed in this context of original sin, like what built America was us bringing over black slaves and genociding the natives and the system that was that came out of that is irreparably evil. And if you unpack that, that's wrong, not in some moral sense, um, but just empirically, that's not correct. Like slavery was prevalent in the poorest region of the country by far at the level of about a quarter of the population for 91 years. That doesn't excuse it, but that has nothing to do with anything from the beaver trade to, you know, the railroads across the country where we really fought the great native nations like the Comanche. Like, you have to get rid of almost all of U.S. history to make that claim. So there really is an attempt to kind of reframe what existence in North America has been like within this lens of the two sins, black slavery and stealing land. 
even the stealing land. I mean, this you can argue whether this is some kind of generational sin, but about 90% of the native warriors and other people that would have opposed the Western incomers and probably won died from diseases. Um, and the old, the original joke about Moctezuma's revenge wasn't about diarrhea, by the way. It was about cocaine and syphilis. Like, there were things from the New World that the Old World proved totally unprepared for as well. Tobacco comes from the New World. So when you actually look at how human society developed, this conflict between two continents, to try to reduce it to what you see in a lot of in a middle school textbooks today is insane. But that's actually what people are doing. Like, this society came from sin and is flawed. It's a pretty straight-up religious view if you've ever been to Catholic Church. So I would say, I was just going to give an example. i say, say, for instance, they mentioned slavery in the context of American history. How it start from start to end, they're, they're really bad. The blacks were considered inferior. They were treated as less than human. All this stuff. Put it all out there. But also, unlike the 1619 Project, admit that there was a fight against it from the start. There were always people who thought it was wrong. There were abolitionists. There are no abolitionists in the 1619 Project, by the way. Oh, really? I didn't read the book. I didn't read the book, so they may have changed it. My book was written before the book came out, so it was about the essays. And they never mentioned it in the essays, right? Okay. And that's what won the Pulitzer, right? The essays. That's what was in the program for the school. It was in curriculum in schools before the book came out. So she made some adjustments, so I can't speak to the book. But my point was, what if they did that completely good, bad, and ugly? And then they say, okay, we taught it. You can't say we sugarcoated it. But now when we go through the timeline of history and we bring up figures, we can admit that they have slaves, but we don't have to pause on Jefferson and spend 20 minutes talking about that and five minutes talking about the Declaration and how his writings about the, the man, who man answers to and where our rights come from is so unique that 95% of the written constitutions in the world come from that, right? So you need to focus on that more when you're talking about American history, because that's uniquely American. You already got the slavery out of the way. That's all I was going to say. Because mm -hmm. what they do is they say, um, they tear it down. They say, well, George Washington did an interesting thing because, you know, he had the right to be a king and he, and he turned it down. That's interesting. Yeah, but he owned slaves. So Thomas Jefferson did this. Yeah, but he owned slaves. The founders were all slaveholders. Well, 28% of them were not. Shut up. <laughs> so they don't even want to be accurate. So if you're going to be honest and say the majority of them were, say majority, but you don't say that 15 of the 51 signers weren't uh, slave owners. You just ignore right. the, those 50, 15 and move on. That's the problem. Right, right, right. No, I definitely I definitely see some of the stuff that y'all are talking about and I see it up close. So I, I, and I, I will comment that, but I do want to just quick, quickly go back because I, I answered Charles's previous question poorly and I want to take another stab at it. But like some of the work that we do when we're when we're trying to put together these podcasts, there isn't archival information about it. Like when we we just got hired by a city in the South to look up their African-American history so we can make podcasts about it. The, the archives are missing a lot of information because historically we didn't care about what black people did in this country. We didn't give a crap. We did not write newspaper articles about it. So there's just like a lot fewer things to find, first of all. So then we try to supplement it with like oral histories. We talk to people like, hi, what do you remember from your childhood? What did your elders tell you when you were growing up about history things? And then we collect that stuff. But let me like tell you, a lot of people don't count that as valid sources. So like, and like when you go to preserve a building, uh, that has like some significance to African-American history of a, t of a place, they'll be like, well, what's the architectural integrity of it? Like, did somebody famous like live there or work there? And it's like the whole structures that we have set up to decide what is valuable or worth remembering are all through a previous lens. Like we have not updated our, the way we value or preserve uh, history 
based on, on, a, on a more expansive view of what is worth remembering. So th- those are the kinds of things that I, that's like why I think that the work matters, because if we don't do it now, actually, like whatever fragments we have are going to be left. And I'm, I'm hoping for a future where we have a different framework for evaluating and preserving. And those things that we're gathering now will actually be incorporated into curriculums in the future. And I don't have a problem with any of that, but I think the work, what I'm here, but what you do, no complaints, no, no pushback, nothing. But I think that's separate from what is happening politically, socially, and the key in education. Right. right. That's my right. issue. And that's what I Let's, yeah, let's segue into it. I just want to say one more thing about history because it's my pet subject, and then we'll uh, switch to education. Like Charles, I think what you're doing exactly is, is, is great. And this is, and t- describe the way you see it as, well, this is a history that has been underreported, underrecorded, and we want to preserve it. Great. That's fantastic. If you, if you, it, this is part of the beauty of, of historical endeavor. You're curious about this uh, world that might vanish or has been poorly preserved. Go save it as a historian. That's fantastic. The question is what, what is the bigger frame or almost metaphysical frame in which you view this project? Yeah. And yeah. that really matters. I have a, a, a dear friend, who's doing, doing research about the, the stories of um, gay communities in early Israel. And there was almost, there was obviously no records about it because they were secret because it was a uh, uh, homophobic society at the time. I'm talking like the 40s and the 50s. So those communities were obviously secret. So try, go and try to find records of how people um, um, exercise their, their gay life at the time fascinating work and and worthwhile learning and gives you a perspective into a completely hidden world. That doesn't mean that Israel today is suffering from the original sin of homophobia because we can't find those records. It means that, yeah, at the time, Israeli society was not that interested or, in fact, was oppressive towards the community. The information was not available. And now, because we precisely because we're at a different place, we want to go back and learn more about it. And we actually have a more inclusive view of who we are as Israelis, as a people. And we want to write a richer story, not because we want to undermine the as- the other aspects of Israeli uh, existence, like the fact that the, 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 you know, all the other aspects of the, um, the pioneers and the founding, the founding generation of Israel and not to undermine its Jewish identity, which was partly the, the reason for the homophobia, obviously the religious side, but also the European side. Not to, but just to show the complexity. And this is a beautiful approach to history to, and to politics. But that's obviously not the way, the prism through which the, the kind of, I don't want to call it even preservationist, the more pugilistic approach to uh, black history that I think Charles is uh, rebelling against. Yeah. So, let's, yeah. so let's get into that. Let's start with the kids. Let's start with K-12 education. What do you see happening right now that has changed um, either since the reckoning or over the past 10 years in terms of the influence of the, the, the current mode of the left approach to, to racism and, and equity? Well, I think part of the problem is the change happened before the reckoning. The reckoning just exacerbated the, pro- uh, exacerbated the problem. I think, I don't know exactly when, Will can probably speak more to when academia tra- started to change the way they train teachers. And so it eventually tri- uh, trickled down. But, I, but before we get to the, that kind of change, the 2020, 2016 change, there was a change in how we address the kids. Right. The children are supposed to be the focus, what's best for them. We knew how we wanted to develop them, what we were trying to inculcate, 
And we don't do that anymore. It became, um, I don't know, like uh, test driven. Good, most of it from both sides was good intention. Well, you got a group that said, how are we going to measure what they know? They need to know things. Let's give them tests. Then you had poorly trained teachers that said, all right, I know what the tests look like. It became like test prep. Let me just help you pass the test. But they were, they, they were failing to realize that if you fail people from K through three, they never catch up. Because think about it. Every year, they add more complexity to the reading and writing that you're learning. So if I don't know the words and I don't know what they mean, and now you're telling me to write a story, how am I going to write a story? Most schools move at the same speed. So if you're behind, you get left behind. If you're advanced, now we do better with AP courses or whatever the case may be. But it used to be like, well, you, you, it's a good job that you're on um, grade level or slightly above. So you can just sit there, read a newspaper, play while we get the other kids to catch up with you. So there's no um, individual focus. So then when you added the social, cultural, racial aspect to it, it made all those things worse, right? Because now Barack Obama you know, famously said, there's too many black and brown kids being suspended. So no one thought, well, maybe we should find out what's going on in those communities and what's happening with these kids. Are there unique behavioral problems that are happening in that community that's not happened to other kids? And if so, what's causing it? They just said, ah, let's suspend less, right? Yet that doesn't, that doesn't limit the disruptions in the class. In fact, it increases. So now you have the good teachers that quit because they're like, I don't want to deal with a kid that's going to curse me out every day. I throw a chair at me. So now you lose good teachers. The, te the kids in those classes, they act like it's a race or an inner city thing, but no kid wants to sit in the class if they're paying attention. And instead of learning, watch the teacher and, and some kid go back and forth, right? So you have that happen. Then you layer on, the kids have been graduating, you know, grade inflation. So the political right is pushing against my union and trying to get all these standards in. We don't want these standards, so they fight against the standards. So we want to evaluate the teachers every year. Well, fine, we just give the kids good grades, and then we don't have to worry about that. Everyone's passing. Then they graduate, and they can't read. Now, they can't read K through 3, and instead, we're focusing on all these social issues. You got classrooms, K through 3, that have activists on the wall and they ask them if they're going to be an activist and you need to be an activist and you need to focus on this. And every lesson is about social issues, right? So now we're weighing these young kids down with, with this burden they don't deserve. And on the one hand, we don't teach them anything. We're not teaching them at their level. On the other hand, we're acting like they're much older. So let's talk to them about open, open sexual positions and this, that, or the other. You know, Will and I, we talked about education on our last episode. And he talked about, yeah, you know, there's a moderate, sensible uh, sex education from junior high school and high school, and I had it. But the problem is what we're having there is more, is more detailed than what he had in, in middle school and high school, and it started in K through K through five. So you put that surprises all me a lot as someone who's very out of the loop on what's going on with education. I feel like my experience growing up in America was a lot of like sex negative and like avoidance of sex at all. Um, I mean, I love it's fine. You don't need to talk about it. I mean, I, I think that this is something I've said a couple of times, like when we had Tiffany Justice on the show and so on. I, I personally, I, I kind of agree with Vanessa on the sex education. I actually agree with a couple of Vanessa's points here. I mean, not, not necessarily surprisingly, just like there's nothing. No, but there's obviously there's nothing wrong with going into American history and looking up stories that haven't been told before. I mean, Madam C.J. Walker was either the first, first self-made female, female millionaire, millionaire or the first self-made millionaire in the USA. I mean, so 
I guess probably outside the field of plantation farming, you know, you'd have to you'd have to adjust for the time period. But I mean, that that definitely seems like something that wasn't discussed very much until quite recently, that there are obvious practical reasons to discuss. And I mean, similarly, like with sex ed, like, I mean, I read the basic sex and marriage manuals like a high school freshman. I thought it was pretty useful to learn what a clitoris is or what consent is. I mean, like, so this whole idea that this is like some dark wizardry that they're telling the kids. I mean, the only question for me with sex education is when you begin that. And I mean, generally, traditionally, that has been eighth or ninth grade, which seems about right. Well, see, but that, that's the pushback. I have a little pushback there because I don't disagree with you either. But I think when you when that's to respond to what I said, you're missing the part that I'm saying when it when it's happening. So I'm openly telling you that it's happened K through five. I mean, really, really, I mean, it's levels. At K, you're like, ah, I probably wouldn't do that at K, but it's not that intense. But by third and fourth grade, it's what you're talking about in sixth grade. So all I'm saying, I'm not saying not at all. I'm saying when you when you make it a little bit deeper than it was when you learned it in middle school, high school, and then you bring it down three grades, that sounds alarms. That's all I'm saying. It shouldn't be in the, in the elementary school library. Yeah, and curriculums are generally decided state by state basis, right? So, are you referring to like this is this is a trend that that is happening across all states, or is this in specific, like one or two states? Like how oh, it's how happening everywhere? But let's be clear, it's not in the curriculum. Some of it is, but see, that's okay. how they get away with it. It's not ah. like they're saying you now. Illinois did. I moved to New York from New, uh, Chicago, and in Illinois, they mandated that you teach certain things. They call it age appropriate, but who decides what's age appropriate? Like like um, sex ed and LGBTQ history and all that, and mandated in the curriculum. That's a curriculum move. But a lot of this isn't curriculum. Like what Will's talking about when our interview with Tiffany Justice was about whether you're banning books and when you should talk about stuff. So the way they get around it, so I don't know if you saw the recent interview Tim, uh, Tiffany Justice did on Joy Reid, and they had a back and forth about um, banning. And Joy did something, and I laughed because I have personal experience, and she said, well, if you against all that stuff, why, here's a form in your state that make, allows you to opt out. Why don't you opt out? And see, that's a sneaky thing. I'm not against the opt-out form. To most normal people like everyone here, I probably you probably all think that's a good idea. My response because the first hand knowledge was, it doesn't work. It only works sometimes. Because you only can opt out of things, that, if I put it to you this way, you'd understand. You can only opt out of things if you know about them, correct? Right? Mm-hmm. So if I send you a message saying, tomorrow your five-year-old is going to learn, is going to watch a porno, would you like to opt out? You say, no thanks, and you opt out, right? But if in the course of the classroom, you know, at the younger grades, they have library as a class, but they also have books in the classroom, right? So if they pull a book off the shelf in the classroom during read aloud and it's and it's graphic, they're not going to give you a chance to opt out because they'll say, well, it just happens. Some kid just pulled it up off the shelf, right? So that's not in the curriculum. The teachers still get the mandate. They're still the executives of their classroom. So all I the curriculum like- does is give you an idea of how you should teach stuff. I feel like I need more information here because this because again I'm coming out I know I'm not following education I'm not but that this just sounds outlandish that teachers are taking it upon themselves to talk about sex to five-year-olds like how do we how and also how do we know how are we monitoring the classrooms in order to know that this is happening or on the rise you can't really or the the things that I got were because the teacher sent emails Hmm. I got it in an email or your kid comes home and talks about what they talked about Mm mm-hmm 
There is no way. That's the problem. And, 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 you know, it's not like the principal can go to every class and monitor every class. They're not putting cameras in it. So, I mean, but I don't want to go down a sex rabbit hole because, yeah. because my point wasn't, because my point, I get it. You, 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 yes. you heard a piece and you were, you were, you know, you're being inquisitive. But my point was that we're taking away from the fundamental things they need to learn. They're teaching, take sex off the table. If they sure. focus on race and that my, my son had four skin color assignments. Mm-hmm. I think four is a little heavy. I'm not against skin color. Four, four times seemed like a lot by second grade. Um, Hmm. They they do they don't do the, the like the right complaints about them doing oppressor and oppressed they might do that at higher grades he's in the third grade now but what I had was like why well, they're different and what blacks can and couldn't do and they'll hmm. say in the past you know right? it used to be like this so you would think totally fine except you have to understand if you have young children that a five six seven year old has a poor concept of time a long time right. ago to a six year old is three weeks ago. So they walked out of the class thinking, saying to my son that he can't do this and he can't do this. That's real world reaction to their not so bad education. That's what I'm saying. So I know, I mean, we, we don't have enough time to spend enough time to, to, to talk about that. But what my point is, is every one of those things we can agree or disagree whether they're appropriate for that age. But every one of those things is taken away from what the kids are, are learning. The, the chancellor in New York's mandate, because they aren't at that level yet, his number one goal is to get kids to be reading at grade level by third grade. My son's in third grade now. Every example I gave you and plenty more I can give you were all pre-third grade. So if they're doing that, how are they learning to read on grade level? That's the issue. You're saying it's coming at the expense of the core fund- foundational yes. skills. Yes, I, we got to visit because of COVID, we couldn't really visit the classroom. So the first two years, but then in second grade and third grade, we got to visit the class. There's two times a year, all the parents come and visit the uh, class and the kids work on an assignment. We're two years in, we've never seen math, science, a science project. We've never seen history or anything. It's all, where's your family from? It's all cultural stuff. Really? Show me on the map where your family's from. Not a knock against us. It doesn't have to, see, the problem is people think, they expect every example. And this is what I say to Tiffany Justice and people on the right. You use the most extreme examples. And they're true. They really did happen. But any logical person like Vanessa is going to say, but come on, how often does that happen? Because you're using the, because the, the worst thing that happened is a slow boil. It's not an instant, hey, drag queen hour. We all heard about drag queen. Every school's not doing drag queen. I've never had that experience. And I'm in a New York public school. I know what's happened. Eric Adams said he was okay with it. I've never seen it. But I have seen, you know, gender courses when he was in first grade saying, saying identity. I have seen you can change your identity in a certain way. It wasn't just a man can be a woman, but they do it in a way that's, that, that will get a young person to think. So my son's reaction to it was, is it rare? He came home and asked me, is it rare for men to get pregnant? And I said, a man can't be pregnant. He's like, you sure? You know, so it's not like they just sat him down and say, Transgenderism is great, but they tell stories. And in the, in the read allows, it's, you know, something, you know, changing of this or it's identity of, of the boy who did this, you know, the boy who wore a dress to school and everything's fine. You should wear a dress to school. That is slow. And I won't go extreme as the right calling it grooming, but it is subtly implanting, implementing and implanting thoughts in the kids to kind of hope that they open their views on all these uh, gender and race issues. Mm-hmm. And it ain't helping them read. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah, that, mm-hmm. that last line to me is the the bigger issue. I mean, I, I personally am quite open about this. I think modern gender ideology is not only bullshit, but retrograde bullshit. I mean, so like I took one of the major gender scales online and I on this was on my Twitter. And I honestly answered questions about I think it was cooking, gardening, oral sex and cats. And it told me I was a woman. 
And before that, I'd been rated as very masculine. What's up, Charles? No, it was like, the, so you can put your rating on the side. Before that, it was like very masculine, like male, alpha, sigma male. And I was like, okay, maybe, probably, I don't know. But then, like, I just gave these honest opinions. I enjoyed gardening, got some heirlooms, you know. And that was apparently a female thing. And that's what gender is. Like, every time you see a trans kid, it is a small boy that enjoyed wearing pink or something like that or didn't like to fight. So this is complete crap. I mean, like, the, the percentage of city kids that would identify as non-binary, like, I don't always perform male or female stereotypes is 100%. So, I mean, I, I think this is pretty damaging to... to yeah, to, but the, the only, real briefly, the only reason I disagree with you, I see you're right, but one, you're doing it as an older age, so they're not messing with your foundation. Oh, yeah. And then I'm saying... Hey, shouldn't be taught to anyone. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. So, it's right. I think... So, I get what they're saying. That's why, real briefly, that's why it's dangerous. I agree that to tell a boy he can't wear pink or he's not a boy is stupid. No, no, that, right? that's the thing. If you're a boy right, and you the, wear The way pink, they're doing it is kind of, Yeah, you know, if you're a boy and you wear pink, you're just a feminine boy. Or like, just a boy in a pink. You're not yeah. even feminine necessarily. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. I've, I've, got the, I've got the pink J's for breast cancer. I mean, like, whatever, you know. Like, But I, I think that the the whole idea, I mean, of, you know, my uh, fiance, Jane, who you've met actually, once summed this up as... You know, back in the 1950s, people used to say that cooking was a woman's role and you'd see women in the kitchen. And in the 70s, 80s, 90s, oh, oh, it was just anyone can cook. You'd expect your boyfriend to know how to cook as well. And now we flipped back to the 50s, except the idea is that if you cook, you are a woman. So many men, of course, do these things. Many men, 30 percent of men are on the feminine side. But that just means that they were really women all along. And that you see these weird discussions in like trans and NB Reddit forums where people are trying to convince others of this. Like, no, you're not just a guy who sometimes likes to hook up with guys. You've been a girl since you were born. You know, it's uh, it's really bizarre. I, I actually don't view this as any weirder than a lot of other mass psychoses like most religions. But it's, it's interesting to see one develop um, right in front of us. But anyway, I think Charles's main point is the, the most important one for me. Like, whether kids should learn about the different sexual positions or, like, how to fight or how to fix car. I mean, like, there actually are arguments for a lot of that stuff in school. Taxes. The, the question, though, is that regardless of politics, you would have to learn that after you've learned how to read and do math. And that's, that's the real issue with the schools. Like, for a bunch of reasons, including classism, which is a real elephant in the American room, by the way, that crosses all racial lines. But just, like, incompetence of teachers, the lowest scoring SAT population. We don't talk about that for some insane reason. But, I mean, none of the kids can read. This is often presented as though it's like a minority problem, like below proficient, meaning basic or below basic, semi-illiterate, 51% for whites. What Charles, what were we talked about yesterday? 60 he was 58 white, 70 Hispanic, white. and like upper 70s for black. No, it's, it's, yeah. not, it's, it's no more than 70 for blacks. I know because I looked. I was surprised white was 70 for okay. the whites. Right, there you go. right. So the goal was always a disproportionate gap. Let's push the blacks. We should be treated the same as whites. So you want to be mediocre? Is that what you want? Well, that's the thing with the whole gap discourse. Like I did a paper on charter schools once. Part of the paper was looking at SAT and ACT averages by state. And what I found was that the black-white gap was actually largest. It was over 100 points in the states where everyone did the best because the scores were overall higher, if that makes sense. So in like Minnesota, it was like 1,300 for whites. And like 1170 for blacks or something like that. Now, not everyone has to take the SAT in Minnesota. That's an ACT state. But in Detroit, that was the lowest performing state or city. It was like 840 for blacks and 910 for whites. Like there's a very small gap and it vanishes if you adjust for class. But that's because no one can read. 
So this is the dark secret in the room when it comes to gap closure, right? Like it's a lot easier to make everyone fail than it is to make everyone a state champion. So I, I don't think we ought to focus on these gaps at all. Like both American blacks and whites are well ahead of the global PISA average. Like all the racist stuff online is just based on comparing those two groups in the USA and cutting like Hispanics out from just below blacks and then Asians out from ahead of everyone. So, I mean, you, I'd be more inter interested in focusing on teaching people how to read. It's um, what's that? What's that phrase in magic? What's the thing that distracts you from the thing you're supposed to be looking at? What's that phrase? Well, he tells you to look over here. Adam, the thing you know the word. Misdirection. Yeah, misdirection. Misdirection. Yeah, I feel like there's like so much misdirection happening in our world right now. It's like, don't don't look at how, if we can read. Look at these things. Like I feel, and I do think like I, I I do believe in the work I do, and I think it's important. But I do think there's a there like there's a lot of misdirection around real problematic issues and an over-indexing on things that are that don't matter very much, but get people really riled up. I don't know if this is like because of the social media world that we live in, but like this is, this seems to be part of our, <laughs> of our reality these days. Either an actual hard body Mises conservative or a Marxist in the social sciences would say there's a reason for that, which is that the people that actually run systems want to distract us with bullshit while they loot the country. And I personally find that pretty persuasive from both sides of the aisle. So, like, I mean, you've got people complaining about the schools. Like, the complaint is always like, do you want to send your kids to a school where they're having sex in the hallways? And, I mean, like, one, I mean, I, I don't know. that. Like, I don't think that that happening once during someone's high school experience would be the most traumatic experience of their life. But, two, I don't think that that is happening. I think the real issue in 90%, like the suburban and, you know, functional urban majority of schools is the this baseline thing. Like there are major problems with required materials from these educational companies. The teachers don't necessarily know what they're doing. They don't care about the kids all that much. And getting into that requires taking on Fortune 500 corporations. It requires taking on the American Federation of Teachers. Like it's hard to do that. So there's, there's a little more focus on kind of BS and then the idea of because of the BS, can we escape the competitive game? And you see that in, in so many systems where like many less sentence, but in poli-sci, one of the things people started studying over the past couple of years is who funds campaigns targeted at various bullshit. Like who is behind a campaign promoting the idea that whites or blacks are frequently attacking the other group in the streets, for example. Um, right now, we're seeing this whole thing about airline pilots. It's DEI in the airlines. The planes are going to start falling out of the sky. And what you see is that major competitors, like I wouldn't be surprised to see foreign airlines or the railroad industry in that one. Major business competitors and foreign countries are heavily involved with doing these things with the campaigns about the crazy bullshit that we're worried about. That's one of the more interesting discoveries, I think, recently in my field. When you think about it, it's totally unsurprising. Yeah, and I don't doubt that. I just think from the misdirection standpoint, some of them are worse because if they're not looting, like you're saying, <laughs> they're they're not just telling you don't look at it. They're telling you you need it because the kids won't be able to read unless you do this. Like the drag thing hour is weird. I don't talk about that much because I don't think it's as prevalent, but it's odd that the argument is all we're doing is trying to help people read. So a, a senior citizen reading or a teacher reading won't help them. But a man wearing a dress and makeup, that's going to make them read. I just don't see... The, the logic behind how it's going to make them help them read, not but all the arguments become whether you should do it or not. Are you are you, you know, homophobic if you don't like it? Are you you know, whatever? How about 
anyone asking the question, Vanessa, the question, how is it, are, are, is there some system, maybe Will should do a study, do drag performers read better than the average? Do they skew, uh, uh, you know, English majors, PhDs in English tend to be the drag uh, performers and all the drag queens can read better. And that's why they should be reading in the library. I don't understand. Yeah, I'm, I am I. mean, I don't really necessarily want to go down this rabbit hole, but I, I, I have no problem with a drag queen reading a book. I have no problem with people reading. So I don't right. care what form or dress you're wearing read. or how you look as long as we're reading. That's good. But that's a different a topic for a different thing. One last thought on uh, what we were talking about. I mean, I feel like, for example, I'm thinking in terms of like the, the parts of our school system that are falling behind, maybe, and I, this is not my area of expertise, but I'm, I'm speculating, maybe there is some connection to between like the way that we've um, actually reintegrated our schools since the 40s and 50s. Because I think this is a major topic that people don't talk about is like how difficult and poorly integration went. Um, I feel like we, we get very over-indexed on how bad segregation was, but in a lot of black communities, segregation was actually really a, like a positive and healthy experience. Um, I'm going to give you a stand innovation now. <laughs> yeah, no, <that's> <laughs> and I feel like people don't like to admit that, but it's true. When you talk to people, it, they found integration much harder than segregation. Have you been talking to, have you been talking to black people? Mm -hmm. I need to bring you with me because I get yelled at by white liberals as a racist because I say this is something that's going to blow your mind and you yeah. can you can attest you're kind of I don't know how liberal but you would consider yourself a liberal I do, you talk yeah. you work in this space you talk to blacks they say I'm crazy Vanessa really? I say this is what I say this will blow you blow your mind that blacks hate segregation but if you talk to black people most of them thought integration was not just a failure they didn't want it to begin with. They wanted to make their schools better. They didn't want to go across town to go to your school. But right now I'm on the board here in Chicago and in New York on the, on the school board in my district. And I am fighting other members on the board because they say this school is bad. It's an overperforming school because there's not enough black kids in it. So they want to go find black kids and bring them to the school, whether it's the right fit or not, just to make themselves feel better. How right. would you ask the kid? Maybe he doesn't want to go an hour and a half just so he can be the black face walking around your hall. Why don't mm -hmm. you make his school better? He would much rather go to the neighborhood school and have it be safe and good. Yeah, and why don't you, you all start true, reaching right? out to the, your partnering schools? Why don't you share resources? Why don't you do events? Why don't you do like workshops? Like there's there's definitely ways that you can bring bring wealth back to educational or actual financial back to communities that need it so that they can build up their right. own situations. You don't need nah, to- let's yeah. just bust them to the white school. It's better yeah. that way. Yeah, but one of the things that people, like I actually agree with both of you guys that integration <laughs> is one of the most dishonestly discussed things in the game. Yeah. Like, obviously, legal desegregation is good. Like, if I'm driving through Agreed. the country and I want to stop at a restaurant that's owned by a Mexican-American, he can't stand in the door, see a white or a black guy, and be like, fuck you, gringo. Like, there, that's good. We have a large, diverse country. There'd be battle-level conflicts, as there used to be if we didn't have that law. But with that, and the, the the wins of the civil rights movement are good. We want in the law to be seen as equal. All we, I think we could all agree for that. Yeah. Except for today's left, they don't like the civil rights. Right. Uh, yeah, but, well, today's. I mean, I, I think like we uh, now. I'm still like I'm I'm hard body conservative when it comes to kind of the traditional uh, guy things. Is the phrase that comes to mind like crime, crucify pedophiles and rapists and so on. The border, put a wall across it, put guys with guns on top. None of this is hard. Um, energy policy, drill holes in the ground, pull stuff out, also build nuclear power plants. 
So, I mean, all that stuff, a pretty standard kind of right-wing position. But, I mean, I don't think, I don't actually think the left is more racist or more anti-civil rights act than the right. I mean, there was, what was it, Caldwell, who's a good writer, a serious social scientist, but wrote a book, The Age of Entitlement, back in 17, that's a national bestseller, arguing that we need to get rid of the Civil Rights Act totally. And that's becoming a selling point on the right. I mean, you, you see people online on Twitter and so on constantly lobbying to get rid of basic anti-discrimination law. My point, though, is that basic anti-discrimination law is, in fact, good. But the things that came out of that, like mandatory integration, was an incredibly stupid idea. And it was an incredibly stupid idea because you had two large, well-armed groups that didn't like each other. So again, a lot of kind of baseline conservatism of the seal the border variety is just common sense. So like, what do you think would happen if you took a bunch of black kids from a tough neighborhood and drove them to a tough Italian American neighborhood and put them in the school? And that's what busing was. And that's what most regional integration was throughout the North. And what happened was that two thirds of the whites and half the blacks left the schools and usually the cities. That's literally what happened. You wound up with a few white holdovers and like the poorest half of the black community in these urban public schools. And that's why they started failing. Uh, and at about this time, as people started pulling out of the cities, business also started leaving the cities, which became more violent and so on. So you had kind of this vicious cycle based on all this idealistic social policy and just sort of saying things like, well, we know this wound won't heal for a generation. We're going to give each school an equal amount of money and you guys can just compete, play some football against each other. That would have worked a lot better. And anyone, I think, with common sense would see that on the right or the left. But saying that came up against some very powerful kind of ideological strong points, and it just, it wasn't very successful. By the way, one last thing, the South actually integrated really successfully. That's one thing that's kind of interesting. Like all those mid-sized middle-income cities in the South, like I've lived in Frankfurt and Louisville down here, like where everyone had been used to living next to, but mildly disliking each other for 50 years. Um, the schools are just like 40% black, 60% white, some Mexican kids. Everybody gets along fine. So it, it actually happened in a lot of the areas of quote-unquote flyover land where there weren't dramatic demonstrations from either side and so on. But it definitely did not happen any place that I've lived in with, you know, the Mile Spire buildings. Like Chicago, the schools, I think, are 9% white right now. People are dropping um, out of I this conversation. I know. I wonder what's happening. Adam and Charles are both video off and muted. Hello, hello. What does it mean? <laughs> yes. What does it mean? Yes. I, uh, so I think Charles just had to drop out because he said he has to leave. So I think that's Oh, that's shoot. Um, no, it's fine. Um, and I had to go throw up because I've been sick all day for some reason. So that's Got it. That's my thing. But 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 keep the conversation going because it's uh it's, it's good. So what what would you do about this? Like how how would you fix American education, Vanessa? Start with the questions, you know. Asking asking the person who doesn't write about education. Um, I guess I'm gonna stick to my my wheelhouse and what I know, and I believe that we need to be more creative about uh, helping people within their local communities and, and situations like bring wealth to them to to their communities and have kind of like long-term sustainable ways of, of passing on wealth um so i i would extend that probably to the education system like we need to have because like your zip code is way too determinant of your your life prospects so i would probably think about how can we help local places, including schools, get the resources they need to set people up uh, for long-term success. But that's a very vague and hand-wavy answer because it's, you know, this is not my, 
yeah. my wheelhouse. Actually, I actually think that's quite a good answer. I mean, one of the things I've noticed the right and kind of the true left actually agree on is that most programs like charity work better locally. Like I yeah. actually do a lot of so yeah. I mean, it, there's a famous quote from some Milton Friedman type, but it's like I'm a mm-hmm. communist when it comes to my relationship with my wife and my kids. Like I'm a socialist when it comes to my neighborhood. You know, I'm a social Democrat when it comes to my town and I'm a ruthless capitalist when it comes to all these bastards I don't know in the other states <laughs> in Mexico and Canada. And that's pretty much my perspective. I mean, so I, I do a fair amount of local volunteering, like I've done inner city coaching and that kind of thing. And I, I think that a paradigm that a lot of people could agree on is, OK, we are a welfare state. There's mon- There are monies that come from the government. Those should be distributed as much as possible in the local environment. I mean, you, you yeah. redistribute so that each environment gets about the same amount close to it. Yeah. But that's, that's what you would do if you wanted local schools to function better. What we've actually yeah. gone toward is what's unironically called the late Roman model, which just doesn't bode well to me. But it's these sort of <laughs> large imperial bureaucracies where if you go to D.C. or New York or even Chicago, you'll see these these sort of temples where it's the, you know, the, the bearer of this, the Department of Education. The Department of Education doesn't do shit. Like, it doesn't run any schools. It hasn't proposed Mm. an improved version of No Child Left Behind for a very long time. What it does is pay the salaries of the 79,000, I believe, bureaucrats who work for the Department of Education. So if you literally just got rid of that and gave more money to everyone in a school, you'd have better schools. So I I would agree on that. The other thing I would do is, then this is kind of the the right-wing take. It's obvious that the problem in the schools, some do lack resources, but in many cases is very simple. Um, many teachers are dumb. Discipline is often allowed to go to hell. And often this isn't just because the kids want to get rowdy. It's because nobody cares. So, I mean, like people, people be allowed to show up to class 20 minutes late, this kind of thing. I would just Im- implement basic charter style rules. Like boys have to wear a polo. You have to be on time. And I guarantee you 80% of the problems we currently see would end. Uh, I do some of this stuff in college classes. Like when <laughs> at five minutes into the class, I'll just put a sign on the door that says you're late and close the door. And like if someone knocks and they have a good reason, I'll let them in. But it decreases lateness by, again, about 80 percent because no one wants to have this embarrassing conversation. Right. So, right, I mean, right. that would be my my second point. But, you know, discipline nice. rules. But other than that, yeah, the, the more you can do things locally and fund them locally, the better. Almost always. Right. OK, I'm going to I'm going to wrap us up. Charles has departed, but you remain <laughs> to get your we like to ask all of our guests okay. this question. What do you think are the biggest blind spots on the left and the biggest blind spots on the right? The biggest blind spot, well, I mean, okay, I'm going to have fun with the first question. The biggest blind spot on the left is that their core philosophy is wrong. Um, okay. The, the, I mean, and this doesn't mean that being an individual liberal, you want a tax rate of 30% in healthcare. I mean, I might agree with those things. But the core philosophy of the actual progressive left at this point in time um, thinking back to, for example, Delgado and Stefanczyk, Kendi, the later feminists, like anyone that I would read in this sector is, is not correct. Like all of society is institutionally structured to oppress. All gaps demonstrate this oppression. The solution is equity. None of those points are, are true. And I would add that there is a deeper problem, which is that human nature, one, isn't malleable that much. I think you can improve IQ scores by 30 points and all the conventional things. But like the basic idea, um, like one of the most controversial things I said on Twitter was that women tend to like wealthy men and men tend to like pretty women. And I did a poll on this underneath it. And 99% of people in both sexes were like, yes, of course, a bit unsubtle, but yeah, that's right. 
you know, but all these people, all these men's rights activists, actually, even more so than like feminist acquaintances, were screeching like it's totally unfair. I can't help wow. who my father was. And it's just like, shut up, bro. Go to the gym. But like that, those kind of awkward realities simply exist. They're not changeable. And there's no reason to get very upset about them. One of the big revelations in my life was that I realized I didn't have to feel guilty about humans being predators. I was like 12. And I liked hunting and a bunch of other things. And I felt kind of bad about it. And then I just realized I didn't give a shit. And I don't mean to be glib. I, just, I don't abuse members of any species, actually, which I think puts me above many humans today. But, like, humans are like wolves. We have certain programming packages. We like to fight and compete. We like certain things in personal and intimate relationships. Most of us do like to hunt. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. If you would like to be a member of another species, that sucks for you because it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. There is no blank slate. Everyone begins with pre-written software. So anyway, that's that's my critique of the left. Your The basic philosophical ideas outside of politics are wrong. Um, my basic critique of the right is actually almost as brutal. Taking a serious conservative position would leave no room for improvement ever. So the, the, the classic conservative position is what I heard when I was traveling, like Costa Rica, Mexico, Nicaragua. I mean, if you ever talk to old guys in a developing country, even a fairly advanced one, and you ask them why they're doing a certain thing, like, I mean, I'm from the Midwest, so I actually have some background knowledge of farming. And I would sometimes see stuff that just didn't seem to make sense. And I would ask about it very politely as a foreign guest, but like, why do you do this this way? And the answer would always be, well, my father did it this way. And I can 99.9% .9 guarantee. Now, I didn't try to implement these ideas. I didn't want to see like whole neighborhoods sliding down a mountain or something because of some dumbass advice from this American. But I mean, I would almost guarantee that in many cases, if you look at, say, the Arab world, advice on everything from desert farming to male-female relations would be really productive. It would improve life. Um, why don't people seek out such advice? Because their father didn't. So actual hard-body conservatism makes it very difficult to change things in productive ways. And like a lot of the things we've talked about here, like new education methods, even sex education in the schools, would getting rid of those things improve society? Well, hell no. Like we know what society was like in the past. It was terrible. So, I mean, nobody, you couldn't vote unless you owned land until like 1890. You know, so just the, the fondness for the past is nearly as damaging as the fondness for a future in which we are not human. I think what you really need, and this is actually like one last sentence, the, the left and the right to some extent have a, kind of a mutually interactive relationship that's necessary in society because you need mutation and change to advance, but it's also the case that a biologist would say about 90% of mutation and change is negative. So you need the people, the, the strong warriors and businessmen and women and all these other people that must seem like assholes if you're in an NGO role. You need people to look at your new project to make, you know, what's living robots that can have sex with you in Japan? You need someone to look at the living sex robot project and say, no, not for 30 years. But you also need someone who wants to do that. You need people who want to propose mutative change and you need people to stop it. So without either of those things, society erodes very rapidly. I think that would be my critique of the right and the left, actually. Well, we need each other, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, in fact. I mean, there are many All similar right. dynamics. Yen and yang comes to mind as a yeah. rated one. Yeah. yeah, let's see if we can manage that without killing each other first. But thank you, this Wilfred, for joining us. <laughs>